This episode of Control-Alt-Delete is supported by City Cards with Android Pay. Listening on your phone? Now you can pay while you listen, using the same device. Just tap and go. Download the Android Pay app on Google Play or visit city.com slash Android Pay to get started. Android Pay is available for eligible city, consumer, credit, and debit cards. Hello, and welcome to Control-Alt-Delete. The podcast that makes America great again. See, that very timely <laughs> intro came from Eshwar Nag on Twitter. It's Eshwar Nag, uh, E-S-H-W-A-R-N-A-G on Twitter. Thank you very much. And it's very timely because they're Republican. We're going to talk about politics the whole time. RNC's off and running this week. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and everyone just switched it off just when you said that. Uh, <laughs> Anyhow, I'm Neil Patel. I'm the uh, editor-in-chief of The Verge. I'm joined, as always, by my friend, Walter Mossberg, the executive editor of Verge, editor-at-large Recode, mastermind of the Code Conference. I, don't, you have, you should have, we, I, I want to build them up every week. Yeah, I, it's true, but you're going to run out of titles soon. But I, <laughs> I'll, I'll cop to those. And I, I just want to say, for everyone listening, that there will be no plagiarism during this podcast. <laughs> Damn we it. invite anyone who wants to run this podcast through that plagiarism checker software yeah. of their choice. The but one of I, their choice. Similarly, though, I invite other people to plagiarize this podcast because the ideas are so good, I want them to spread. Yeah, it's fine. But, so if you uh, want to do a word-for-word -word <laughs> recreation of Control-Alt-Delete, this episode only, feel free. This episode only, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's a one-time yeah. one -time RNC yeah. offer. Yeah. Anyhow, we are sadly not going to talk about the RNC. Actually, Happily not going to talk about the RNC. Uh, yeah. We're going to talk about something that is pretty big in the industry right now. It We've talked about it in small ways for months now, basically. Yeah. Uh, but while you wrote a column this week, you did something that I am dying to do <laughs> and I just don't have time to do. You went through all the apps on your phone and deleted all the ones you're not using. You deleted like 50% of your apps. Um, right. 54%. You, yeah. 54%. And you use that as a, as a kickoff into what's going on with app stores, what's going on with software. Tell me about these big thoughts you're having. Okay, so the big thought is, you know, the app phenomenon on particularly the iPhone uh, to start truly was a phenomenon. It's an overused word, but it was a phenomenon. And it is a phenomenon still. I'm not sure that we've ever had in as compact a period of years, eight years or so, uh, that much software development done on any one platform ever, unless it's Android. I mean, you know, between or between the two of them, right. it's it's been an unprecedented thing, just unprecedented. I mean, colossal energy, colossal uh, creativity. And there have been some amazingly great app that people use all the time. Google Maps is a great example. You know, the Facebook app, which was very crude at the beginning, is I think quite a good app now. There are a, a bunch of others uh, we could cite. And then there are a lot of specialized apps that people use for particular things that relate to their hobby or their business or whatever. But the big idea is there's real app fatigue. This began showing up in analyst studies and I think in Apple and Google's own private studies, though I can't be sure, just judging by uh, at least Apple's actions that it must have shown up, uh, you know, toward the end of 2014 and kind of you saw it pop up in uh, some reports, as you pointed out, uh, over the last year or so, that pe people had basically stopped downloading apps, even if they were free. And that the ones that were being downloaded were mostly games, which 
there's nothing at all wrong with games, but you would want a more of a balance. I mean, it was so lopsided toward games that it was like a, a little bit of a warning bell. Same as if it had been totally lopsided toward, I don't know, photo filters or spreadsheets or something. You know, you, you want a variety and you don't really have a variety in popularity. And in fact, uh, something the, la- the one of the figures I saw while doing this uh, column was that something like 65% of people haven't downloaded an app at all in months. Yeah. And then what I realized thinking about this was that on your own phone, and I really don't care how many apps you have or how big or small the memory of your phone is. Um, you know, I explained in the column I have an unusually large number of apps because of my job. I have an unusually large amount of memory in my phone because of my job. But even if you're way at the other end of the spectrum, I am convinced that for the vast, vast majority of people, it's not just that you're not downloading new apps. You actually are walking around in your purse or your pocket with anywhere from a dozen to hundreds of apps that you never use uh, ever. And they're just like dead skin or whatever mm-hmm. sitting there on your <laughs> phone ta- taking up – except they take up a lot – they take up space. Um, yeah. And they add to clutter and all that. So I thought I'd do an experiment and see just how many I could get rid of in kind of one two-day pass. And it took me two days. It didn't take me two whole days, but it took me significant chunks of two days, partly because I knew I was going to write a column. So I documented in, on legal pads all the apps I was getting rid of. And uh, you know, I had to stop every once in a while and actually remind myself what, the, what this app did. You know, right. go to the app store or launch it or do something to try to remind myself. And so it took uh, longer than it might somebody else. And it, it's, it was really kind of, uh, you know, eye-opening, not only – not just that it supported my guess, but that it showed me that I've li- I, I live every day without touching most of these things. I could probably go back and knock off another 50 if I really wanted to uh, because, for instance – as I said in the column, I kept around, a, you know, multiple email apps just because I'm constantly looking, as I think you are as well, for the right, the perfect email app that will allow me to stop using Apple's or Google's, which I think both of which have different but but significant problems. Um, same with calendars. These things should be great and and. and Apple and Google have enough software engineers to do them, but they haven't done great ones, So, at least for the phone. Uh, and so, you know, th- that's the big idea, that the app economy, the app flood driving you to download apps, driving you maybe to buy new phones that are capable of running apps faster or, or running different kinds of apps, that really has kind of, I think, slowed to a halt and if you looked at my Twitter feed today, it was really interesting. There were people in there that said, oh, well, you know, this is why when I buy a new phone, and some of them were iPhone people and some of them were Android people. I got some for about half-half. They said, I, I just buy it. I, I never restore it yeah. from the backup. I just start clean, and then I, I go and, and pick the apps I want. Now, that's a little bit problematical because at least on iOS, one of the – great benefits of restoring from a past phone is it brings in all your settings and everything. So for the 
whatever percent of apps you really do use, if it's 10 or 15 or 20 or 8 or however many there are, you're going to get everything just back how you want it. Well, um, there's some value to starting clean. I, you know, I, I, every now and again, I, I try to delete apps. You know, you're saying you have to remind yourself what they do. I have these like waves of indecision. Like, what if I want to watch a show on FX? Yeah. I should keep the <laughs> FX Now app. I know. And it's like, well, I just, you know, I just, I can just go bullet. get it again. I just bit the bullet and killed all those. Yeah, and here's why. Uh, and this may be particular to me, and I tried to point that out. People are different, obviously, but I do think, like, if I'm going to watch a show, I'm very likely to pull out my iPad mini to watch it, an iPad mini, which you have seen me use for many Mm -hmm. things, or a laptop. That's likelier than if I'm going to, than me watching it on uh, my phone. Uh, And so for my iPad, I might not have killed all the kind of TV type apps that I did on the phone. Well, that's but, actually, yeah. but Apple, if you, you know, if you set it all up the way that Apple wants you to set up, you download the TV app on your iPad, it just shows up on your phone. That's actually on, an option. Yeah. You can actually, uh, they actually ask you if you want to turn that on. I think it, it's off by default, to be honest. You're correct that it, they'll do it, but I don't think it's on by default. Uh, some Somebody will clear that up for yeah. us, I'm sure. But if it's, even if it's on by default, you can turn it off, whichever way you don't have to have it. So, you know, I think this is a, a big problem for obviously for app developers. This is a big problem. It means you're not going to get away with a slightly different version of Boggle. There must be you know, Boggle, <laughs> the, the board game. God knows how many versions of Boggle, slightly different or Scrabble. Or whatever, like, you know, Words with Friends, which was kind of the Pokemon Go of its day in in, in one respect, was just a ripoff of Scrabble in some yeah. ways. And it wasn't the only one. There's a lot of them. And then official Scrabble came out with one or two or maybe three different versions of their thing on each platform. So, you know, I think for developers, it's bad news. It means you have to try harder. It, you know, it means... You have to sort of, if, if you really do think you have the best email app, the one that you and I are looking for, or, uh, you know, the best, uh, I, I said this in the column kind of jokingly, because I don't think it's even necessary with uh, uh, Siri and uh, Google Now and, and those sorts of things anymore. But if you really think you have a fabulous calculator, yeah, I mean, you you have no idea if you go into the app store and type calculator, you have no <laughs> idea how many there are. I mean, honestly, and I understand there are scientific calculators that do things that regular calculators don't, but there's a lot of regular calculators still there. And at the very beginning of this in 2008, when I wrote a column about it, which I'm I know you have, and you're probably going to read something from mm-hmm. uh, later, um, that was like really cool. That, of course, the calculator was one of the core apps, but maybe somebody came up with a somewhat better one and you were like, whoa, this is a really good calculator. But there was that drive at that time where everything converged onto the phone. So every physical device that you have turned into an app. So maybe you had a really nice graphing calculator, but now you can, now you don't need a separate one. It's like a great app on your phone. I just think we're past that time, right? We know yeah. that everything's going to be on the phone. So the excitement of getting rid of stuff and turning it into apps has somewhat waned. 
and the excitement of I use my phone for everything has definitely waned. And it's we're just kind of in this middle period of where is your attention going to go? And it generally seems like, you know, the, the stat you said at the beginning is usually expressed as um, the average number of people, uh, the average number of apps people download in a month is zero. Right. And that is that is a difficult and almost impossible to crack stat because everybody wants something else. So you can't, you know, unlike Pokemon Go, which is like a huge worldwide phenomenon, there are very few breakout apps in that way. Uh, yeah. No, I, I, I completely agree. I also think some of this, some of it, a little bit of it, and more and more will, but right now, even right now, a little bit of it is happening on uh, just by these these intelligent assistants, which are, you know, to quote Jeff Bezos, so early in the game that they're the first guy at bat in the first inning of a long game. Mm-hmm. Uh, even at that level of crudeness, if I want to know what the Red Sox stand, uh, where the Red Sox are in the standings and what the score of their game was last night, I used to go to MLB. And MLB, I did not delete from my phone because I'm a baseball <laughs> fan, and and it has some other depth, and you can watch games and things like that. But but that is a is the most frequent thing I'd want to know. This is the kind of thing you used to look up in the paper newspaper and all that. But I don't have to do that. I can ask the Amazon Echo in my kitchen. I can ask Siri on the phone, and it puts up a lovely thing with stats and. You know, where this here are the standings, or here's the box score of last night's game, whatever you want to see. So that's just an example of, of one thing. The other big thing is social media. I think a lot of like these news apps have for phone use again. Again, I mean, I think sometimes you drill down more on tablets and 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 laptops for phone use. You're going to learn a lot of what went on at the convention. And the latest story about, you know, who took responsibility for the plagiarism in the speech or whatever it is from your social media accounts, which are very tailored to using on your phone. And you're not going to go and browse through the Washington Post to see what happened at the convention. At least I'm not on the phone. I, I will probably rely on Twitter, which includes the Washington Post's uh, accounts and retweets of them and so forth. So I think that's a factor too. I think that, you know, Facebook especially, but also Twitter uh, and to some extent maybe even Snapchat have um, have helped replace what some of these single function apps used to do. Yeah, so that's really interesting to me because the, the first wave of apps obviously was on desktop computers. Um, and that right. was disrupted powerfully by the web. Um, right. And now you know, the number of apps I download for my laptop is zero. It's just yeah. in, a, in a given six-month period, it's basically zero. In a given right. year, it's basically zero. Right. Um, I, I, down, I download more than zero but less than 10 just for review per, because I'm reviewing something. But yeah. Right. But uh, almost everything that I access – and you bring this up in your column – the back-end infrastructure, the service of Facebook, is expressed on your laptop through the, the web and on the phone through an app. And the app is usually a better expression on the phone than the web, so you prefer it. That makes sense to me. But the market for desktop software was very clearly disrupted by the web. And yes. there has been nothing on the desktop that has replaced the web, as far as I can tell. There's no, you know, Apple has an app store. Microsoft has an app store for Windows. But that stuff 
it is a sideline to I have a browser and almost everything I want to do happens in a browser on a laptop. Um, yeah. On the phone, and this is where your column from 2008 comes in, on the phone, you know, Apple's first move, Steve Jobs said, we have a great solution. I think he called it a really sweet solution when the first iPhone came out. If you want to put an app on the home screen, just make a web app. And developers said, this is ridiculous. His investors, his board members said, what are you doing? And then a year later, the App Store was there. Um, right. And the web was not the perfect expression for software on the phone the way that it was on the desktop. So the App Store came out. So I've got it here. Uh, July twenty second, 2008. Uh, Walt, uh, in all things D, a shopping trip to the App Store for your iPhone. Uh, I'm just going to read you. I'm going to read the introductory paragraph here. Or the first two, and then uh, there's a, this list of apps. This first set of apps that Walt reviewed, and it's it's actually an astounding list. So I'm gonna go through the list. So here's here's the first two paragraphs. The single best feature in Apple's second generation iPhone 3G isn't the increased speed or the GPS location feature. It is something called the App Store, which Walt put in quotes at the time. Uh, a clever distribution mechanism for third-party programs to run on the phone, and it's close causing the iPod Touch. You don't need a new iPhone to get the App Store. It's also part of a free software upgrade for older iPhones and a $10 upgrade for the Touch. A te- they're charging $10 to the Touch. is amazing. Yeah. Uh, in the first 10 days since the new iPhone and App Store launched on July 11, more than 900 programs, <laughs> or apps, again in quotes in tech jargon, have been introduced by numerous developers. Over 90% cost less than $10 or are free. <laughs> so, like, the whole the whole market has completely changed, right? Like the, every right. one of those numbers is radically different now. Uh, John Gruber on his site today linked to a post, the top grossing apps in the store are all free. Almost to a one are free with in-app purchases, which was yeah. not a thing that existed when the App Store came out. So the Correct. entire mechanics of this has changed. Anyhow, so then, uh, you know, the column, and then here's the list of your early best choices. Uh, AOL Instant Messenger, AOL Radio, Evernote, Instapaper, Travelocity Travel Tools, More Cowbell, which is a cowbell <laughs> app, Touch Tarot, which is a tarot card reading rat, something called I Want, uh, Urban Spoon, Air Hockey, which is a, uh, I actually had that app. I remember it well. It was one of the first yeah. games. Motion X Poker, MLB.com at bat, Crash Bandicoot, Nitro Kart 3D, Truephone. Almost none of these apps are relevant. <laughs> anymore even the ones that are seemingly still somewhat relevant like evernote and instapaper uh and urban spoon have been totally reworked in the case of instant paper shut down bought by another company totally relaunched uh and then obviously mlb.com at bat has been the one that has carried forward everything else has in the past eight years virtually disappeared or gone away or come back in some other radical form and yet as I think I put it out in the column today, I, I checked. There are still dozens, dozens of more cowbell apps, <laughs> scores of tarot reading apps, and lots of voice over IP apps, even though the iPhone can make Wi-Fi calls now. And Apple introduced its own voice over IP thing for free that is quite slick, right in the phone, FaceTime, yeah. which for some reason seems to always connect you and I whenever we call each other. I've been trying but- to use FaceTime audio <laughs> calling more. Uh, it sounds great. Whenever Walt and I accidentally call each other on FaceTime, <laughs> it sounds so good. But have you noticed it's, it's very slow to connect, especially if you're not on Wi-Fi? Uh, and it's, it, 
it it's just a little bit flakier than a phone call. I've, I've noticed anyway. But it sounds well, that, amazing. That's the internet. That's the internet. That's anyway, the point is, yeah. True Phone. I I don't rem- I don't think it's still there. Uh, please forgive me, True Phone people, if I'm wrong about this. Yeah, the, the ten uh, True Phone users are listening. To this are but out. there's a lot, and uh, well, they were kind of pioneers. There was a one. Another one called Line Two, mm-hmm. uh, which gave you, I think, a separate. They all gave you in those days a separate phone number, and but the, the point is, some of these same categories still exist. But of course, there are two million apps in the App Store, and you know, for many years, I used to say, well, one of the, my six reasons why the iPhone was the best smartphone was they had so many more apps, and. Some people would always write to me and say, what difference does it make? You only use six of them or whatever. And I would always point out choice matters. And, you know, if you're going to buy a phone and spend roughly the same money, why not get one where you have a lot more choice? And I, you know, I still, to some extent, I think choice is important. But at some, there is some law of large numbers or whatever. That's probably a yeah. wrong, wrong, wrong use of the law of large numbers but at some points you get to a, a large number where it's just like the cereal aisle in the supermarket right there's just like too many kinds of cheerios really <laughs> no i get what you're saying i mean the, what the thing that i was thinking about when i was reading your column um was microsoft word for the longest time people would say why can't you make it simpler and microsoft's answer right. was everyone wants five different features so it everyone has – we can't just pick the five that you need because our other customer wants four that you like and then one other that you don't need at all. I know. They need I, I used to have this this huge argument with Stephen Sanofsky, who some people listening to this know is a very respected and uh, uh, longtime Microsoft executive who for about, I don't know, I think maybe 10 years ran office. And if you know Stephen, you know, he has – Lots of statistics to back up whatever he wants to say, and he would always bring me out these these spreadsheets or statistics showing the ten favorite features were different for each group. Like there actually were some significant minority of people who wanted the equation editor, mm-hmm. which was the first thing I got rid of in every time I got Word, a new version of Word. You know, uh, so but. Google later proved that you could just you could just cut it down to a bare bones set of uh, for word processing at least you could cut it down to a bare bones set of things and people a large very large number of people would find that that was fine. Well, and, but they also gave it away for free on the web, right? So there yeah. was no friction to get it, to pay for it, to install it. You just went to another website, and suddenly your your computer had another capability. Yeah, and actually, Mike, but Microsoft did that too, and it didn't. Nobody used it. Well, they were late, and it wasn't their existing Word clients who might want such a thing were already using Word. Uh, you know, there's there's just something there about what the web is for desktop computers, where I wouldn't tell you to not come up with a new web service the way that I might advise you to not enter the fray of the App Store. Because if you can come up with a web service that's really great, then you can just build an app and people will use it. And the value of your product or whatever is in the service. Um, it's not necessarily in here's a great app. And I right, think but you're, what you're saying is for that formula to work, if I understand you correctly, you start aiming at the desktop 
with a web service that's great. Because if you aim at phones, tablets are, are, I think, more like the desktop in this case. But if you aim at phones for a web service that you want to be great, that you have to go into the web browser to use, I don't think you're going to be, have a very good chance of, of attracting large numbers of people. Yeah, but if you it, – it, to me, it's more about where you – where the value of your product lies. If the value of the product is something that isn't totally encased in an app, if the value of your product is I want you to come back and use this thing over and over and over again, rather than I want you to pay me $1.99 for my calculator, then you've got something where you can put the app on the phone and you can go to people on the desktop and you can you know build some other expression of it for the Apple TV or whatever it is. And you, you get something that is where the, where the product is not just an app that you buy one time because no no of course and most most apps i dare say now games productivity apps whatever they are most of them do tap into some big cloud service in the background whether you access them through a website on like you know i look at twitter on my desktop and this may not be what everyone does but i know a lot of power users do this i use an app that Twitter owns and doesn't actually upgrade very well. I, I mean, a, this is a desktop app called TweetDeck. Oh, TweetDeck and, is like classic abandonware. Yeah, but it's but it still works and yeah. it's, and it, it it gives me kind of a I have a twenty seven inch iMac screen and I can see everything you tweet, Neilai, and <laughs> all the responses to it, along with everything that where somebody mentions me and along with everything where somebody mentions our friends, our other colleagues and friends at The Verge and The Verge itself and Recode and whatever, you know, Vox Media. I can see a bunch of that stuff. There is no tweet tech for phones. It would be pointless. You just can't do that on a phone. But it's the same back end. I mean, there's a zillion Twitter clients for Android and iOS. Some of them have a way to look at more than one person stream one stream at once but not very well i don't think but it doesn't matter i mean it's the same stream coming and you use it all the time and you know the facebook app i mean they uh, some years ago as you know they just tore up what they had and they rebuilt they tried to do an html5 version that would work on both all platforms and it just didn't work very well so they went and built particular ones for ios and android and I think they even for a while, maybe they still do have one for Windows Phone. <laughs> and uh, well, well, Windows Phone died. I mean, that's a, actually a really good point here. Windows Phone suffered from exactly the problem that you were talking about, which was it didn't have the apps. So even if the platform was better, the hardware was better, whatever, you would get it, and then you were. It didn't have Instagram for a million years, right? I mean, that was that was the one right. I think that came up in every no, Windows they, Phone. They, I mean, you know, Microsoft. Officials who I talked to periodically, I would go there and talk to them or they would come uh, here and talk to me and they would say, well, we decided that the thing to do – after they realized they couldn't get the kind of uh, numbers that uh, Android and iOS had, they said, we, we've done a study. We figured out the top 100 apps or 50 apps that everybody uses and we're only – Four away from having all 50 or whatever it was. And they actually paid people for a while to do it and that kind of thing. And uh, the problem was they got – they might have even gotten all 50 by the end. I don't know. But um, it was too late. It was just too late. Yeah. I mean 
this unbelievable, unprecedented surge of development uh, had already taken place on somebody else's platform. So here's the here's the question we ought to talk about. Yeah. Apple, which has never said what I said this morning exactly, from which I haven't heard today, by the way. Apple understands something's wrong with either app discovery or incentives for developers or both. And so, you know, we had the exclusive story a few months ago that our friend Lauren Good wrote when she wasn't campaigning for her cat to be the new name <laughs> of Android. And a campaign that I joined in, and I think you did too. A very successful um, campaign that we now believe. Very, yes. very. Trump can only hope for that luck. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> so here's the question. We, so we did this exclusive story, uh, Lauren did, Lauren Good, and Phil Schiller, who is the Apple, had for many years has been Apple's, and still is, Apple's worldwide marketing chief, was given an additional job of revamping the whole app store and the whole developer relations process. And he, he laid out what they're doing. Just a short, there's a whole bunch of elements to it, but the basic thing is they are going to encourage developers, I don't think require, but encourage developers to turn as many of their apps as possible into subscription-based uh, as opposed to one-time payment or as opposed to free to use but in-app purchases so that if there is an in-app purchase, you could buy a subscription that would cover that in advance. And if you were free and you made a change to the app, you improved it, you could recoup some of your costs there through the subscription. And that would help developers. And if you did a subscription, stayed with it for a year, Apple would cut its take, its retailing take essentially from 30% to 15%. And he talked about, I can't remember the details, but talked about some additional some revamping in the app store to make apps easier to find and so forth. Do you think that will work? I'll Do you think that will get people downloading apps again? I will tell you after this message from our sponsor. Control-Alt-Delete is supported by City Cards with Android Pay. How cool is it that we live in a world where you can use the same device to listen to Control-Alt-Delete and buy your morning coffee, groceries, and more? And did I mention it's a super fast way to pay? Just use your City Card with Android Pay at the register. Get in, get it, get going. Download the Android Pay app on Google Play or visit city.com slash Android Pay to get started. Android Pay is available for eligible City consumer credit and debit cards. So your question is, Apple's made all these changes. Google's actually matched most of those changes in some ways. Well, they uh, haven't been made. Them. Let's be clear. They haven't been made yet, but they're in the works and coming very very shortly. Right. But the, the big one is, if you have a subscription one, we'll cut our take from 30% to 15%. Google said it's going to do the same thing and, and not actually make developers wait a year. Great. All that's great. I think that question is really, can it's less about consumer interest in apps and more about is there a sustainable business for for developers in the app store, right? Because you you can't currently under Apple's rules you can't do trial software you can't sell an upgrade. So they're saying, look, that was the old way for packaged software on a desktop. The new way is sell people an app subscription for ever basically for three dollars a year and just continually improve your app because. Why do you need to sell a new version? What does a version even mean when we're distributing the stuff digitally, you know, like constantly updating? Right. That's, we, we would rather have you do fast updates and have people 
pay and expect those updates. I think that's great. Uh, like honestly, that is a smarter idea about software distribution than we're going to do trial prices and upgrade prices on new versions. Of course, apps should get better all the time. That's a new kind of consumer expectation. Is There are some problems with that, and you and I were talking last night. Apple has to give, if every app suddenly starts being a subscription app, you have to have robust, obvious, simple, granular controls over quitting your subscriptions, right? You, If every right, month absolutely. you're being charged $5 and you don't know what app it's for or why, you're just going to end up in a money hole and Apple's, you know, your your amount of trust in Apple to help you manage what you're spending is going to go down. So there's a, a big piece of work to make that happen. But if they figure that uh-huh. out, and Apple's pretty good at figuring stuff like that out at least, yeah, then I think that's a much better model for revenue, for business in the App Store. That's great. The flip side of it, which is a question you just asked, is is that going to make consumers more excited about apps? Is it going to make them want to download more than zero apps a month? Is it going to steal attention away from social networks and Game of Thrones and da 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 da? I don't think so. I think that's a, those are business changes. Those are revenue model changes that are on the whole good for developers. They are not changes that are designed to make it easier for you to know what's good, for you to be shown newer, better things, for you to want to understand a newer, cooler capability of your phone. That stuff remains to be solved. Right now, the best way for an app developer to advertise a new app is to buy advertising on Facebook. It's it's a huge income stream for Facebook. Apple is doing paid search ads in the App Store now, or they will, uh, yeah. because they want a piece of that income stream. But yeah. we're still talking about just raw advertising spend to get your app in front of people. That's that's the old way. That's not consumer demand is so overwhelming. There's a gold rush in the App Store. So my read on it is Apple's making good, smart moves to make sure the App Store is sustainable, but they're not making any real big moves on rekindling the fires of excitement around apps. I, I completely agree with you. My only small caveat is that that although you know Lauren did a great job on the story and reported uh, all the nuances she could extract from what uh, Phil Schiller was telling her. There may be some details of it that we can't really judge well until we see how it comes out in terms of app discovery. Mm -hmm. But the problem is you're not going to discover what's in the app store unless you go to the app store and people have stopped going to the app store. Yeah. You're you're led to it by advertising. I mean, really- Yeah, you're led to it by advertising or word of mouth or- just actually free media in a sense, me tweeting, you tweeting, person X tweeting, doesn't have to be a journalist. This is the most amazing calendar. You, you know, if you don't like the calendar on your Nexus or your iPhone, this is fantastic. That might lead you to click on the link and that link takes you to the App Store or, to, or more likely to an intermediary web page from which you then yeah. can go to the App Store. But And just to be clear, Google has all of these same problems. But we oh, talk about yeah. we talk about Android <laughs> apps. So and Android is an app platform so much less often than iOS because it's still true to this day, most big apps come out on iOS first. Because you're actually iOS users are much more likely to spend money and download apps than uh, Android users to this day. Well, that's true. And also, uh, and I, I was reminded of this when researching the column, that 
a lot of developers just find it much easier to develop for iOS because there's so much fragmentation in Android that it's just, you know, certifying and testing on a million different device configurations and OS configurations is just much more costly and time-consuming. So they, the, the combination of the fact that it's easier and more lucrative on iOS makes these apps come out on iOS first, uh, sometimes only, and I think it's more of a factor in Apple's sell to consumers than it is in Google's sell to consumers. It particularly, we haven't talked very much about this, but because I focused on phones and and I, for good reason, but uh, particularly with tablets where Apple really has done a good job of creating a tablet type of app and Google has done a much worse job of creating a tablet type of app. But you're right. The consumer side of this is hard to see how it gets fixed. And back to the very beginning, it's not just that you're not buying apps, listeners, you're actually carrying around a lot of dead ones on your phone. If you're running out of space on your phone or there's a lot of clutter on your phone, suck it up and get rid of them. (laughs) Suck it up and get rid of them. It's hard. You just stand there. I was looking at my app screen. I just sort of scrolled to like page, you know, 12 of 16. And it's like, well, what if I want to use Google Earth someday? And you just sit here racked with indecision. And the answer is I haven't used it in 100 years. That's exactly right, Eli. And I had that same decision uh, the other day when I was doing this. And the only difference was because I had set my mind to doing this, I looked at Google Earth and I shed a mental tear for one one hundredth of a second (laughs) and got rid of it. And as I think you pointed out briefly, you know, if you make a mistake, you can get these back without paying for them again. Um, Right. Because a- Apple does record. It would be great if these platforms told you, hey, you haven't used this app in five months. Oh, my God. <clears throat> Somebody tweeted that to me today. He said, or she said, I don't, I don't, I don't remember what gender they were, but, the, but they said, what if, why can't you sort your apps by size, by how recently you've used them, by date that you got them, by a bunch of ways, on your phone, not in the store, but on your phone? And I think that would be a great move. Yeah. I mean, why can't you sort your apps, period, is an interesting question. So I, I have so many apps on my phone, and they're just in random order, that I launch almost everything by searching. So I oh, swipe me too. down or I pull That's exactly over. what I do, except for the first page. Yeah, the first the page fir- is the, fir- the first page, I, I do a little work to make sure, like, like – the most recent thing I did was to move Facebook Messenger to the first page because I began to get enough me- traffic on it that it was worth putting on the fir- first page. Yeah. That's, that I did a few months ago. And maybe every few months I changed something around on the first page. But, but the rest of it is all search. Sometimes I even dare to use Siri. <laughs> and it and it actually works most of the time launching apps. So Well, I mean, to good. me that's the big the big big question is isn't that really the issue with discovery? It's if it's not on your first page, even if it's just on the second page, it's virtually dead to you unless you need it. Right? So it's not yep. in front of you, you're not thinking about it. It's it's just somewhere on your phone as an added capability and if you need it, you'll search for it and open it. Which and and the corollary in Android is if it's sitting in the app drawer, mm-hmm. 
and it's not out on any of your home pages, yeah, it's dead. I mean, forget it. Unless you unless you search, but you know, or use or use the voice command to launch it. Did you ever? Uh, you, did you ever have this problem with any of your PCs or Macs in that heyday? I never thought to myself, "Oh, I have a bunch of crap software in here that I don't use." It, it, it's like a weird. And I was like a, a software nerd. Like I loved getting the stuff. Uh, no, you didn't have that problem because, except for shareware, mm-hmm. a term I don't think we've used on this podcast Ooh, till this minute. There you go. Uh, except for shareware, you paid for things on your PC or your Mac, and because you pay, and you often paid, you know, a lot, and uh, so you put them in your taskbar or your dock, and they were there, or you put their icons on your desktop, and they were there. Right. And um, no, and also I uh, again I don't have the numbers on this. It could be that more apps have been developed for Windows than have been developed for Android or iOS over the 30 years or whatever of Windows. But it can't be that more apps have been developed for Windows or OS X, I'm sorry, Mac OS, uh, than uh, have been developed for these mobile platforms in the last seven or eight years. It's been astonishing what's been developed. So, in the last seven or eight. So, are we at the point now? If one of your so one of the reasons that you would buy a Windows PC, you know, ten years ago was it would almost certainly have the apps that you need, and the Mac might not, or the Mac would have some weird. And this was true a bunch of times. Would have some weird third-party clone or just a less developed version. And the ones the Mac apps that were great were often better. But if you had some like weird custom business app. You were screwed. You needed a PC. Yeah, you absolutely had to have a PC. And so right. that's just the PC was insulated from that. We've been talking about iOS in particular. It has sort of the the vigor of app development still on iOS. But what we're saying right now is there's fatigue, and Android for the most part has virtually all the same problems in all of the same major apps. Are we at a point where you would recommend switching to Android? Or you would say it's that is no longer an issue if you wish to switch to Android. Um, I have nothing against Android. I I think there are still a lot of cases where there's a benefit to be in the Apple ecosystem overall. You know, it depends if you if you have no interest in the iPad, no interest in the Mac, no interest in the Apple TV. It makes the phone switching problem a lot easier. Mm-hmm. But if you have those things, then the iPhones value goes up in terms of you, not maybe for the all of society, but for you, it goes up. And I, I just think that's true. I mean, I have a granddaughter. Apple has a very good private, secure way of me getting pictures of my granddaughter and videos of my granddaughter every day from my uh, kids. And there's something like that that Google has recently introduced mm-hmm. But if I really like Google's better, I can still get it on my iPhone because Google Photos on the iPhone has all the features, all the main features of Google, maybe all the features of Google uh, Photos on Android. I I just don't see the need to switch to Android because, A, as I said, if you're in an Apple world, if you're in Apple's world, the iPhone has a lot more value than an Android phone to you. And B, whatever your circumstances, if Google does something great, it's very likely to do it on iOS just as well, just as it, it does it on Android. Right. 
I mean, I, I, I have, I mean, I have access to Google now on my iPhone. Uh, I can do voice commands. I can see how long my commute is. I can see the score of my favorite team. You know, I can, I can, I can see that the Patriots have trashed the Packers once again uh, on my uh, Google Now on my iOS device. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not. It's a little harder to to bring it up, but not much. I use the Google app all the time. Right. And we've we've actually written about this, how Google is, I I think our headline, uh, I'm sorry that I can't remember which of our great uh, colleagues wrote it. Google's making better apps for the iOS. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. No, but somebody wrote one before that that said Google is colonizing my iPhone. (laughs) And, And then they used the word colonizing. And I, some years ago, wrote a piece about why the iPhone gets all the good apps. And um, it's because it doesn't dominate the entire world, but it has a huge install base, and no one's going to let that install base go wanting if their business is advertising or and data collection and all the things that uh, uh, Google cares about, uh, all the things that Amazon cares about, which is buying things, uh, digital and physical, all the things that Microsoft cares about, which is keeping all their uh, customers happy in these uh, Office 365 <laughs> things. So uh, th- I don't feel like I'm giving up a thing with the iPhone uh, in terms of what Google is doing on Android. And I don't know of any third-party developer that does great apps for Android but refuses to do them for iOS. I don't know of that. So no, I don't. I don't think this phenomenon I'm describing, which hits both of them, uh, really is a big help to Android over iOS. Uh, it's, to me, it's what are the reasons you pick one over the other? And one of those reasons was always there are more better apps over here. And I think over the course of this conversation where I'm landing at is that reason has been whittled away and it doesn't really matter anymore because you're not downloading any apps anyway. If you If you get the 10 that you need on your home screen, you're going to You've you've got now you've got other stuff to do. You've got other places to pay attention, and I think those ten, whatever those ten are for you, exist at parity on both platforms. And it's kind of maybe this revenue model change that Apple's making is going to inspire a host of new kinds of app developers. And there's going to be another ten that are only on iOS. But if we're at parity, it's actually kind of an interesting time because you know this next generation of phones appears like it's going to diverge a little bit in what they're doing and why, right? Like Google's next generation of phones is going to be all Android daydream, VR, high-spec, crazy resolution stuff, at least at the high end. And Apple's next generation of phones, you know, we, we have no idea what they're going to do, but they appear to be going down a different road. And I, I think that's that's actually exciting. It's, it's exciting to watch, okay, the first wave of mobile has happened. We've hit parity on one of the big differentiating factors. And now... Both of these platforms are going to go off in different directions. I think that's that's kind of fascinating to me. Yeah, I think it's very risky, consistent with Apple's long game view. It's very risky that they're they appear, from what we know now, to be saving everything big and you know dramatic for the phone that will be coming out in 2017, which will be their 10th anniversary phone, and that the one we're going to still cover and still give a lot of attention to this fall, uh, positive or negative, 
and I'm thinking of you, headphone jack, right now, um, is not going to be that different from the phones we have in our pockets now. And there'll be, you know, I think Apple has decided that given the maturity and the, you know, leveling off of growth in the smartphone market, that they need to do something big, but they can't get it done in one cycle. And, or at least what they have in mind is big enough that they want to take two cycles. So they'll be doing some things this fall. Uh, it looks, it looks, it looks like there will be a much better camera mm-hmm. on top of an already very good camera. Uh, that they're going to try to leapfrog Samsung. There are people, including some of our uh, our folks, who've felt that the Sam's the current Samsung camera is a little bit better than the iPhone camera. I think they're going to try to leapfrog that again this fall. I think, you know, we already have discussed and we'll we'll discuss again. Yeah. The headphone jack issue, we'll see what they do to to deal with that. But I think the big big stuff is is for 2017 and you know it, it'll affect their financials, but I as long as I've covered Apple Except for the very beginning when they were almost out of business, where the financials mattered a lot to, for them to stay in business, I've never, I've never uh, heard their, their CEOs and their COOs and their, uh, you know, their other senior officials worry about the stock or the quarter or the whatever. I mean, it looks like they're willing to take hits and then come out with – actually make the phone – an exciting yeah. uh, new category. I mean, they have a again. mountain of cash. They can they can take a year next year. To do what they need to. So, but this app thing is either going to have to be solved on the consumer side as well as on the developer side, <clears throat> or they're going to have to find some other way. And this may be part of the AI thing that we've talked about. Some other way to make the phone relate to you other than through an app you go and download and use. Well, that's a, I mean, if they make the phone, if they radically redesign this phone next year and it's super beautiful, it'll, it'll just sell itself. I, I, it, I just keep thinking about what they did with the iPod, which is every year it just kind of looked different, and everyone bought a new one. Yep. I mean, that works yep. for Apple. They haven't done that in a long time. Well, they also put new features in those iPods. Yeah, but most of the <laughs> new know, features they, were they like put the photos, iPod Nano then is they like put skinny videos now, and, and then it's fat, and then it's skinny again. Well, like, but okay, but it's, no, it wasn't skinny and then fat. It got skinny and skinny. You forget that no, Saturday I, Night I, No, I, I meant the, the height. It was like the short one, and then there was a tall one, and then there was like a short one. It, they just did that a bunch of times. Right, right. But they managed – I mean I, I can remember looking at some of those iPad Nanos and thinking I can't believe this is an electronic device <laughs> that holds that holds pictures and videos and music in this little tiny thing. Yeah, every week we talk about how, how badly I just want an iPod again. I got to buy one of these things. Someone sent me a picture. They bought an iPod and they replaced the internal with an SSD and I just have to – I'm just going to do it. Are you serious? Yeah. You're talking about an iPod an Classic. An iPod Classic, which still sell because for big they dollars. Did it. They did have SSD iPods. Yeah, yeah. so they, the iPod Classics, used ones, still sell for big dollars. People buy them. Well, how much will you pay me for mine? Uh, well, I yours, like a, yours is probably handed to you directly by Steve Jobs. It's like a collector's <laughs> item. I didn't I don't take anything That's free. True. Actually, speaking of Jobs, I wanted to ask you this. We, we talked briefly about your column, the App Store coming out. Did he foresee... All of this action in the App Store was it part of his vision, or was it just something that he? Oh no, he had to be convinced. He didn't want to do it. Uh, he really did believe in that web app thing, and 
<clears throat> it was partly because he thought, you know, you would get good satisfaction out of it, but it was partly that he did not want to put third party what he considered probable crap on his phone. And something about a window into the web was just like, you know, sort of a easier way to get into the browser, whereas these apps could be something else. And he had people convincing him. And so they built this whole structure of reviewing and curating and all of that and putting up, I mean, think about it. They had to build, to stay true to their, his and their uh, credo and their principles, they had to do this whole review structure. They had to do this whole thing of popping up warnings. I mean, remember Google until very recently, you just had one page with a lot of fine print that you always said yes to. Whereas Apple would say, do you want, it still does. Mm -hmm. You would get a pop-up randomly saying, did you know that uh, the Neelai app is recording your location right. even when it's not being used? Do you want to allow that? I mean, that kind of thing Jobs insisted on. So they had to spend money and build a whole structure to accommodate having third-party apps. So no, he wasn't crazy about it. And now He had to be now, convinced. And now look at here we are. I mean, it's just wild. And something else is going to happen. Who knows? But we're, it's definitely an inflection point for this model. It's funny, you know. We and we will be here to discuss. There's it. only been we got to we got to wrap up the show. It's funny. We think there's this like long history, but there's only been two or three of these inflection points throughout the history of the tech and like where it goes next is actually a pretty open question. I don't, I don't think history is a great guide here. No, I agree with you. It, it, it isn't a great guide, and I think it's it's like the people who said, oh. If if Apple doesn't, I don't know license license yeah, its operating system. If license iOS, it'll just be like the Mac having low share. Well, two things have happened that make that look ridiculous. One is the Mac still has low share, although much bigger share than it did at one point, and it makes a fortune. Uh, it's a twenty six billion dollar business, and secondly, not so much any problem with the iPhone because they don't license iOS. So, um, yeah, history isn't a good guide. And uh, I realize I'm a little older than you, but to me, 1977, you know, in some ways it's a long way, f way, way back. But when you zoom out 10,000 feet, it's nothing. Yeah. I mean, the, the whole PC to mobile, uh, to tablet, to all the things we have now, revolution is very, very young. It's very, very young. And we're going to find out what happens next. Okay, we got to wrap up. There's a ton of other stuff to listen to. We thank you for listening to this show. Please get a hold of me and Walt. We love your intros in particular. Walt is at Walt Mossberg on Twitter. I'm at Reckless. Tell us what you think. I'm sure about this one. Everyone has a million ideas. So we're dying, dying to get your feedback. We love it so much. There's a bunch of, like I said, a bunch of other stuff to listen to. I host The Vergecast, which comes out on Fridays. I think our friend Lauren Good is actually going to be on this week's Vergecast. I've got another show that's running for the next two months, the Mr. Robot Digital After Show. Uh, Mr. Robot's a great show on USA Network. They very trustingly said, do you want to do a half-hour show after the show? Just talk about the show however you want. 
So we're doing that. They're fools. They're really fools. We, it's it's one of those things. What a risk. New media. Here we go. Um, so they're letting us do that. That will air after Mr. Robot uh, every Wednesday night after Mr. Robot. Tune into The Verge. Tune into usanetwork.com. We'll be there. If you miss it, you watch the show afterwards. It'll be on YouTube. Find it that way. That'll be cool. Lauren Good herself hosts Too Embarrassed to Ask on the Recode Network. Peter Kafka hosts Recode Media, which is wonderful. Kara Swisher hosts Recode Decode. And then on The Verge side, Chris Plant hosts uh, What's Tech? And Emily and Liz, Emily, my co-host on the Mr. Robot Show, Emily Yoshida and Liz Lopato host Verge ESP, our entertainment and science show. And uh, Panorama Music Festival is going on this week, or this weekend, uh, here in New York. Emily's going to be at that. And I'm sure ESP is going to be interesting as she talks to all these artists about uh, what they're doing with science and technology as they, as they make their art. I think that's it. I think that's all the stuff. It's a huge week. God. Oh, and Comic Con is this week. I mean, it's a massive week on TheVerge.com. Uh, and actually, this is going to come out on Thursday, so I'm going to say it now on Wednesday. There's a Mark Zuckerberg interview on TheVerge.com this week, which is very interesting, with the, the next 10 years of Facebook. And they are their Aquila internet plane is up in the sky doing stuff. So uh, if you're listening to this, check out The Verge. That'll be, that's our big feature written by Casey Newton. Uh, so you got to check oh my that out. So just a huge week of Verge stuff. Uh, and, and Casey is hiding in Italy. Well, while Casey's on vacation. Out. That's true. So tweet at Casey. Tell him to get off of vacation. Find some other people to interview. Uh, and then yeah. on top of all that, Walt and I are going to solve the whole app thing. It's going to be great. But we'll be. But yeah. <laughs> Shoo. That was exhausting. But uh, but exciting. Yeah. Exciting. And one thing we need to tell people is we'll be off next we'll week. We'll be off next week for this podcast. But we'll be back on Thursday, August fourth. The week after, we'll be back. Um, and like I said, we love your feedback, so so talk to us. All right, that's it. And review us. Five stars. Five stars. We There's some service now that just emails Walt the reviews, and he forwards them to me, so that's great. <laughs> so hit us up. We love any way that you want to do it. That's it, man. Walt, that was a good one. We'll, we'll be back in a couple weeks. How's it going? Take care. 